I'm Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and welcome to our podcast, Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. Joining me today is my friend and the show's co-host and producer, Joe Armstrong, and we are going to be talking about the soon-to-be Supreme Court Justice Kataji Brown-Jackson. The Senate just voted to confirm her nomination, and today is all Judge Jackson all the time. Joe, welcome. Hi, Jessica. I never get a chance to say this, but an unhistoric event happened this week. You are exactly right. If we're going with 1776 as the birth of our nation, after 246 years, we have our first black female Supreme Court justice nominee who has been confirmed after Thursday. She was confirmed in a Senate vote. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer went with the origin date of the court itself when he said, quote, in the 233-year history of the Supreme Court, never, never has a black woman held the title of justice. Katanji Brown-Jackson will be the first, and I believe the first of more to come. It's the end of that quote. In the midst of all this, Jessica, I had a moment this morning when I realized that we currently have the first, well, she's not a justice yet, the first black Supreme Court justice to be and the first black and multiracial vice president simultaneously. So that was kind of a personal moment, making history in any case. So there's a lot of firsts here to talk about, Jessica. So run down that list for us. What are they? Yeah, and Joe, I want to echo what you just said. I actually made space to watch the Senate vote. I didn't think that there were going to be surprises, but I did just want to see it for myself. And watching Vice President Harris preside over the vote for Judge Kataji Brown-Jackson, it was a moment where I had to sit back and think, this is a very different country than even the country I remember when I was in college. And um, that's not actually, you know, tens and tens of years ago. That's not decades ago. So you asked me some of the first. I'm actually going to start with something that Judge Jackson said when she gave some remarks with President Biden on the lawn outside the White House. She said, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. We have come a long way toward perfecting our union. In my family, it took just one generation to go from segregation to the Supreme Court of the United States. And Joe, it reminded me about something that I had heard the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg say about how much change there can be in a family with just one generation. And she said, when I talk about my mother, I sometimes ask the question, what is the difference between a bookkeeper in the garment district and a Supreme Court justice? The answer, one generation. So that I think and hope brings home the importance of how historic this moment is. So you asked me, you know, what are some of the firsts? You laid out some of the history here, and we've had, she will be our 116th Supreme Court Justice. 108 of our Supreme Court Justices have been white men. She will be our first Supreme Court Justice who is a former federal public defender, and that certainly played a role in her confirmation hearings. We heard a lot of questions about whether or not she's quote unquote, soft on crime. And then in other ways, Joe, you and I have talked about the fact that she looks like a conventional pick in the sense that she has this sterling legal resume. She has two degrees from Harvard. She has federal clerkships. And in fact, she clerked for the man that she would be replacing, Justice Stephen Breyer. Who else clerked for the men that they ended up replacing on the Supreme Court? Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh. So 
in a lot of ways, the fact that she previously worked on the D.C. Circuit, that she clerked on the Supreme Court, that she has degrees from Ivy League schools, all of this looks like our typical Supreme Court justice. And then, as we're talking about today, in so many ways, not typical, historic, and personally brings me a lot of optimism. All right, so let's set the scene. This just took place in the late latter part of this week, this last week. So how did the vote go? And I know in one of our most recent episodes, you made a prediction on what that vote would be in the Senate. So how close were you on that prediction, Jessica? I was not that far off. I believe I said 52 votes because there were 53 senators who voted in favor of Judge Jackson for her now former job as a D.C. Court of Appeals judge. That was just in June, almost a year ago. I thought she was going to lose Senator Lindsey Graham, which she did. Uh, But the vote ended up being 53 to 47. So for me, when it comes to predictions, not that far off. All right, so we're going to circle back around and talk a little bit more about how the voting procedure went in just a little bit when it comes to things like partisanship. So stick around for that, everyone. But let's talk a little bit what's going to happen going forward. So Jessica, I know you, again, study these things professionally. When will she be sworn in? When will she be not just justice-to-be? When will she be justice When there is a vacancy. So I saw on social media and some reporting people saying, yes, you know, the vote is done. She is Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. And I, always being the rain on everybody's parade, said, actually, not yet, because she can't be the justice because her former boss, Justice Stephen Breyer, is still on the court, still actively hearing cases and deciding cases. And we don't have a 10-member court, which means she actually has to wait for a vacancy in order to replace somebody. Um, Justice Breyer has said that he will step down at the end of this term, meaning after the court makes its decisions for this particular 2021-2022 term, and that should be right around July 4th. So she has some lead time here. All right, so Breyer's on his way out. She's on her way in, barring things we don't know what will happen in the future. So let's talk a little bit about how she might change the court. We already know that it's not going to change the current ideological split of the court, but what kind of impact do you think she's going to have on this? So this is such a good question, and the answer, of course, is that it's a 6-3 to court today, and it'll be a 6-3 to court when she is on it. And so from a 30,000-foot view, when it comes to the big breakdown on the big cases, then I think a lot of things will not change. But when you have nine people, just nine people who have this much power, you change any one person. um, And it does fundamentally change the court. So a couple of things to think about. I think listeners have heard me say some version of today's dissents can be tomorrow's majority opinions. So she could help to build a body of law that's not adopted today, but maybe sometime in the future. The other thing is that depending on how she wants to style her dissents, you could see a majority potentially writing opinions that are more narrow or in some ways more broad than they otherwise would. And every person, again, imagine a dinner party with nine people you swap in one person for another just because they agree on a lot of the big things. It doesn't mean the conversation's going to be exactly the same. So 
her influence will be felt for a long time. She's 51 years old. We all wish her good health. And the expectation is that she will be on the court for decades. So in the short term, six to three court, probably for, frankly, the medium term as well. But we never know what happens in the long term. And again, we've seen over and over again that dissents can be deeply influential for the direction of how the law ultimately goes. That's a point I'd like to stress, something you brought up in that little paragraph there. Justice Breyer's 83 years old right now, so when he steps down, he's an older man. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, 51 years old, which means she's got decades ahead of her, at least potentially. So having that kind of longevity on the court can change things down the road, as you said. So Jessica, what kinds of cases, we know there's things on the docket already, what kinds of cases is she going to see first? So yes, we already know some of the cases that the court will hear starting the first Monday in October, which I believe the first day of the next term is Monday, October 3rd, 2022. One of the big cases that a lot of people are talking about is an affirmative action case. And she's already said that she would recuse herself. I heard her say that she would recuse herself at least from the part of the case dealing with Harvard. So this is a question about whether private institutions of higher learning and public institutions of higher learning can use affirmative action in their admissions decisions. I believe she has a leadership position on a board at Harvard, and she said during her confirmation hearings, which is maybe the only new bit of information we actually got in the confirmation hearings, yes, I would recuse myself. My memory is that her wording was fairly careful, and I think that there could be room for her to say, I'll hear the part of the case dealing with the University of North Carolina, but not the part of the case dealing with Harvard. Um, There's also another big case dealing with this matchup of the freedom of religion protected under the First Amendment and a state public accommodations, meaning anti-discrimination law. It deals with a website designer who doesn't want to design websites for um, same-sex couples who are getting married. Uh, There's a copyright case dealing with Andy Warhol. There are actually, I believe, two, definitely one big Commerce Clause cases. Don't fall asleep, everybody. Those are actually big cases dealing with the scope of Congress's power. And then there is already a big EPA clean water case. So um, there will be a lot for her to weigh in on. And then there are the cases that, Joe, you know, you and I maybe don't talk about as much, but they still have an impact for the litigants. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of criminal law issues, and we'll have to wait to see what else is added to the docket. All righty. Thank you for that summary, Jessica. Let's get down to brass tacks again. Let's double down on that. Talk about who voted for whom. Which Republicans ended up voting for her confirmation? So Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who, as we said, voted in favor of her nomination to the D.C. Court of Appeals, again voted in favor of her nomination to the Supreme Court. I also mentioned that um, Senator Lindsey Graham, who had supported her for the D.C. Court, uh, said, I'm not supporting her anymore. Um, There's much to say about Senator Lindsey Graham, but let's keep this about Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And so she picked up a vote from uh, Senator Mitt Romney of Utah, and that is how we count to three. And that is how we ultimately count to all 50 Democratic senators and then those three Republican senators. 
So I feel like the Senate confirmation hearings for Supreme Court justices were once upon a time perfunctory and somewhat performative. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was confirmed with a 96-3 to vote way back in 1993. Lindsey Graham, who you talked about just a second ago, he himself voted to confirm Katanji Brown-Jackson to her soon-to-be former job on the Washington, D.C. Court of Appeals on just mid-June of last year. She seems eminently qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. So this vote, in a lot of ways, really isn't about her. Am I right? Well, I think it is in some maybe troubling ways, and I think it's not in a lot of other ways, which you point out, we're just not going to see those numbers again anytime soon where the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg confirmed by a vote of 96 to 3. We could have a similar discussion about, I think Justice Antonin Scalia was confirmed almost unanimously. Justice Stephen Breyer, again, I think you saw votes around 90 senators. We're just not going to see those numbers given the current climate, given the current makeup of the Senate. And so in those ways, I think you're right that this split vote is not about her or whether or not she's qualified. On the other hand, I would say we can ask questions about whether or not she had, in fact, tougher treatment, tougher questioning, um, because of who she is, because she's not just a woman and not just an African-American woman, but also based on her background as a federal public defender. So I think some of this is in troubling ways, as I said, perhaps is about her. But in large part, it's really just about how the Senate operates right now. Yeah, we're existing in a post-Kavanaugh and post-Clarence Thomas hearings world. And those hearings have an effect on the process going forward, a tit-for-tat sandbox kind of situation. And along these lines, current Senate Minority Leader Republican Mitch McConnell, in a statement, tried to frame Republican opposition to Ketanji Brown-Jackson as differences in judicial philosophy. Do you think there's any truth to that, or is there something else at play here? Well... I think there is something to that in the sense that Mitch McConnell is saying that Republicans don't share a judicial ideology that is either center left or left of center, however we want to describe it. But again, that didn't used to be the standard. The standard used to be we're going to give advice and consent with respect to whether or not this person is qualified. If the question is, is this nominee qualified, then that's also the answer when it comes to future Justice Jackson. If the question is, do we ideologically agree with how we think she's going to vote on big issues, um, then that's a different world in which I think the Senate is currently operating. And again, that's how I think you see the split vote. Um, Mitch McConnell, I will say there was just an interesting interview with him. And the reporter asked, basically, if Republicans regain the Senate and there's another vacancy on the Supreme Court, would you hold hearings? And I heard his answer to be 15 different ways to say, no, I would not. So Senator Mitch McConnell is a political operator. He's somebody who's very tactical, and I would say, in my view, um, is not always very consistent about his theories when it comes to the Supreme Court. And conceptually speaking, it seems to me that some Senate Republicans are bending the phrase consent and advise within an inch of its functional life. So let's take on a tr- let's jump on a train here. This is the train to crazy town, a phrase I don't get to use on passing judgment very often. There were some certainly crazy accusations along the way as this process 
worked its way through the Senate. Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas said that Jackson might have defended the Nazi leaders tried at Nuremberg for war crimes after World War II. The insinuation there is that she is somehow sympathetic to Nazis. It's patently absurd. Ted Cruz from Texas charged that Jackson's prejudicial career as a public defender meant that she has, and this is a quote, a natural inclination in the direction of the criminal because a public defender's, quote again, heart is with the murderers, the criminals. That's who they're rooting for. So thanks for that, Ted Cruz. Ben Sass of Nebraska said that Jackson has, quote, impeccable credentials and is, quote, an extraordinary person with an extraordinary American story, but he nonetheless would not vote for her confirmation. And not to be outdone, maybe a PR stunt more than anything else, she's not a senator, but Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene called Romney, who supported Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination and did vote for her, and other senators as, quote, pro-pedophile. So there's that. Jessica, Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution states that the president shall, quote, nominate and with the advice and consent of the Senate shall appoint judges of the Supreme Court. So taking all of this together, Jessica, what on earth did we just witness during this process? <laughs> well, I think that uh, when we talked about this last, I said oftentimes these confirmation hearings are a circus, but there were portions that were more like a horror show. And I'm going to stick to that. I'm not going to dignify what Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said with a real response because that's preposterous. I don't know what else to say about that. So what we witnessed, I think, is a lot of politicians um, speaking to their base and not actually addressing who Judge Jackson is, what she will do on the court, and frankly, I think doing us all a disservice by not accurately describing what it means to have an adversarial legal system and why it is important for both sides to have representation. We don't just want prosecutors when we have an adversarial legal system. We also need vigorous defense attorneys. And this idea that she is somehow a Nazi sympathizer or that she sympathizes with people convicted of crimes dealing with child pornography, we've talked about this. There just simply is no there there. And I think, frankly, what we learned regarding Judge Jackson is that she has a phenomenal judicial temperament. And she sat there for days being frankly, I think, accused of things that had very little basis in reality. And we saw only one moment where she seemed to get frustrated. And her version of being frustrated was saying to, I believe, Senator Ted Cruz, you asked me this a number of times, I answered a number of times, and I have nothing new to say. So that's what I think we just witnessed, which is a process that has gone from a political process to a really toxic political process. As I've said many times, Jessica, politics is theater for bad actors. Now let's talk about what happened. There's a special case with two particular senators here that I really want to circle around to before we get out of here today. Let's talk about what happened with Senators Rand Paul and Lindsey Graham. When it came time to vote, neither Senator Graham nor Senator Paul were allowed to vote on the Senate floor because, wait for it, Jessica, they weren't wearing ties. There is a dress code there at the Senate. Despite the fact that Graham was wearing a tie in a press conference earlier in the day, that's demonstrably true, he voted no from what's called the Senate cloakroom, which is a sort of lounge off the Senate floor. 
Paul himself, he had his own little tactic. He engaged in the classic Republican tactic of delaying. I suppose maybe Democrats do it too, but running out the clock seems to be something that's been prevalent since the Trumpian years showed up. Although he didn't try to run out the clock, he delayed the vote nearly half an hour by just not showing up. When he did show up, he ended up casting a no vote from the cloakroom. People in the room said that Paul merely stuck his hand out of the cloakroom door and gave a thumbs down. To that, I can only say, Jessica, yikes. In terms of norms, remember those. Senators usually vote from the floor of the Senate chamber, but for significant votes like confirming Supreme Court nominations, which is what we're talking about today, a request can be made for senators to vote from their desks, and that's just what Chuck Schumer did. Journalists on the scene said that several Republican senators walked out of the chamber in the midst of the standing ovation that happened after the confirmation vote due to the historic nature of the vote. And according to Politico, Senator Mitt Romney was the only person on the Republican side of the chamber to stand and applaud the confirmation. Democrat Joe Manchin reportedly walked over and stood next to Romney while Romney clapped. Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska was witnessed standing and applauding on the Democratic side of the chamber. The author of the Politico piece also said that they did not know the whereabouts of the other Democratic senator who voted aye on that, which is Senator Susan Collins from Maine. So, Jessica, I know earlier, way back in the beginning of this podcast, you said you did watch this momentous occasion. You did watch this vote as it was happening. So can you please give us your personal impressions of the vote and overall how this whole confirmation process went? Well, I think the vote is just another symptom of what we saw during the confirmation process and what we see in American politics, which is that it was deeply divided and in so many ways deeply disappointing. So I did see the Senate Democrats really have this moment of joy where they stood up, they applauded. This is historic, as we've been talking about, not just because it's a huge deal to confirm a Supreme Court justice, but because it's a huge deal to have a historic first when it comes to a Supreme Court justice. And maybe I just don't watch enough Senate votes, but I will say I was really surprised when I saw almost every, I saw Senator Mitt Romney, but I didn't see any other Senate Republicans, almost every other Senate Republican file out, in my perspective, seeming to make a show of having to leave early. And it really looked like the sore losers who walk off the football field or the tennis court, you know, they don't wait to shake hands and they want to make a show of being really angry about it. So that's what I saw. I just thought it was really disappointing because, again, can we have a moment of respect for the historic nature of this vote? And I guess the answer, of course, is no, in fact, we can't have that moment, at least not on a bipartisan basis. Again, I wish that when it comes to somebody who has these credentials, that the question wasn't just, what is your party affiliation and can we pick off, you know, three Republican votes, that the question was, is she qualified? And of course, that's not the question we tackled. Okay, Jessica, let's put that nasty stuff to bed. I would like to move on. Let's turn to the future. What happens next is the question. Does Katanji Brown-Jackson get to pick out new carpeting for her offices? Does she hire a staff? I mean, obviously, yes, but how does that process work? Does she get new business cards? Jessica, I know you love a good sports reference. You just made one yourself. Baseball's opening day was this week. (laughs) She's been brought up to the majors from the minor leagues. So what does that entail for her or for any new Supreme Court justice when they show up in the big leagues? So she has some lead time here, and she's going to set up her chambers. And I think part of that is, yes, she will get to 
redecorate. Obviously, she, again, needs to wait for a vacancy for that. But she's going to hire her staff. She may make a decision as to whether or not she's going to bring her law clerks from her time on the D.C. Court of Appeals or the law clerks that she hired for this next term or if she's going to hire new law clerks. She will probably make a decision about hiring a judicial assistant. And this gives her some time to read up on the cases that we talked about earlier in the episode that she's going to be hearing next term. And I believe it was just this week that Justice Barrett kind of lamented the fact that she had no lead time, that I think she was confirmed. Now I can't remember what day of the week it is, but she was confirmed. And within a few hours, if not a few days, she was on the court during oral arguments. Now, of course, there's a reason that there was the compressed timeline in that case, because I believe people were already voting in the next presidential election when she was confirmed. Um, But she certainly will have the, you know, quote unquote, luxury of um, some additional time. And as we know, and as we're going to talk about more this summer, I'm sure, the court actually has a fairly active shadow docket. So there may be decisions that she needs to weigh in on very, very quickly after she is sworn in. It's a good thing she's qualified, right? Indeed. (laughs) All right, Jessica, you just mentioned Justice Barrett confirmed in the autumn of 2020. What does being the newest justice on the court mean? I know she's not quite there yet, but like I said, we were talking about carpeting and and business cards and that kind of thing. But what there's there's got to be like procedures. There's got to be I don't know, not rules necessarily, but norms in the Supreme Court. Is there some kind of hazing ritual they go through? Do they go to lunch? Does she get a tattoo? What's the deal? So what we know is that she is in charge of the cafeteria committee. So the junior justice is always in charge of being in charge of the Supreme Court cafeteria. And it's fun to follow Supreme Court reporters because they certainly have favorites in terms of who makes the better choices when it comes to the Supreme Court cafeteria. I believe, and I'm going off memory here, that Justice Kagan put in a soft serve machine, much to the celebration of many people who used the Supreme Court cafeteria. The other thing is when the justices ultimately do have their conferences, which is after oral arguments, they go back into a room. It's only the justices, no law clerks, nobody else. And they talk about the cases and they make some preliminary findings, or they basically say, here's how I'm thinking. Here's what I'm thinking of doing here. And the chief justice will, if he's in the majority, assign the case. And if he is in the minority, then the senior member of the minority will assign the case. Um, We know that when it actually comes to opening and closing the door, I believe it's the junior justice. So it would be uh, Justice Jackson who would open the door for all the justices, wait till they're seated, And I think there may have been in the past some note-taking responsibilities, but I'm not sure that that continues to be the case. So that's some of what she will look forward to as the junior justice. And of course, um, she could be the junior justice for a long time. Sometimes it's six months, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's a decade. Uh, No way to know. New gig. Exciting stuff. And congratulations to her. On a personal note, before we get on out of here, Jessica, when she is confirmed, assuming that she is, I personally will be older than two of the justices sitting on the Supreme Court. As I said earlier in this episode, yikes, Jessica. So thank you for talking about all these things with me. I love having these conversations and uh, I look forward to having more. 
Well, you know, I can't give up a good SCOTUS conversation. So I'm really happy that we did this. This was not a planned episode, but I'm really happy that we could make time for it. And I hope you all enjoyed listening. We're going to bring you a lot more Supreme Court news as the term winds down. Obviously, we're waiting for big cases dealing with abortion, dealing with gun control, uh, dealing with the power of the executive branch that remain in Mexico case. And we will bring that all to you and much more. Yes, Jessica, thank you. You can find her on Twitter and Instagram and sometimes TikTok at Levinson Jessica. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and maybe someday TikTok at In-Depth Day. That's I-N-D-E-P-D-A-Y. And the main place you can find me is at joearmstrong.com slash in-depth day. Thank you everyone from the bottom of our hearts for listening. We hope you have a lovely day and a great weekend. <laughs>